Hello again. Good morning. If you would open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 9 as we make our way through this great book. My name is John. Next week, Jake will be at the pulpit taking us into Proverbs chapter 10, but we are this morning, Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. And the children, or as we like to call you here at Covenant, little theologians, thank you for being here. If you could, as I preach through this passage, be working on a a picture of a feast. I'm not sure if a feast is a good thing for you. Maybe you draw food that you like to eat. Maybe pizza and candy and marshmallows. It doesn't really matter. But draw a picture of a feast. Because this passage tells us that for Christians, all of life is lived at the table of a feast with Jesus Christ. That's all of life, a feast with Jesus. Well, again, our passage, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, is where we'll begin. First, though, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we are not often very good listeners. Not very good listeners to one another, but even more so, not very good listeners to You. And yet, You are unrelenting in calling out to us. And so we thank You for that. We ask that this morning, as we look at this passage, as we listen to this sermon, that You would give us understanding of Your Word reminding us that You are speaking to us. And Heavenly Father, would You carry us into this week with that Word. We thank You for doing this by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Amen. Proverbs chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts, she has mixed her wine, she has also set her table. She has set out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incures injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat in the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple... Let him turn in here, and to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. 
And this is the word of our Lord. Well, it's going to sound like I am boasting, but I'm going to do it anyway. My family had a wonderful pleasure of living in Italy for a month. I was there serving a pulpit supply for a friend of mine. And during that stay, we were invited to a, uh, an event that was taking place at an ancient, unoccupied villa in the hills above Nogarazza. The villa was very old and a little bit dilapidated, if I'm honest. Nobody, in fact, lived there. The Italian owners really only used it as a vacation getaway, but mostly they used the stables of the villa to keep their many horses. But while my family was staying in Italy, an Italian by the name of Paolo invited our family to a meal to be prepared by a professional chef and his assistant. That meal would be served in the courtyard of this ancient villa. Now, what would you say to an offer like that? I mean, I suppose you might ask a few follow-up questions like, how much is this going to cost me? That's legitimate. And Paolo's English was good, but it was still broken. And I'd only known him for just two weeks. And in fact, I had no idea where he might take my family. But I imagine that you'd be just like me and that you would lean towards accepting. And we did, and we did. And we had an amazing four-hour meal in that gorgeous villa in the center of horses and vineyards. Now this passage here in Proverbs 9 is really all about being invited to a lavish meal. Only you and I were not always leaning towards accepting this lavish meal. That's a part of this passage as well. Because sometimes, astoundingly, as Christians, we lean the opposite direction of accepting an invitation to such a lavish meal. To accept the lavish meal is to walk in wisdom, enjoying the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And to deny this meal is to succumb to temptation and to walk in folly, refusing to worship the Lord. Christians can lean both ways. Because in the very center of this passage, in between wisdom's offer of a meal, that's the beginning of the passage, and folly's offer of a meal, that's the end of the passage, right in the middle, we're told that we need someone like Paolo. We need someone to remind us that wisdom's meal is prepared, it's ready, it's done, and it's far better than any other meal you're presently tempted to receive. You, Paolo would say, should come. And that's the application of this passage. Because every Christian needs to be reminded of wisdom's meal to worship and enjoy God. This is a passage that's meant for Christians. Christians need that reminder. The meal, it's prepared, it's ready, come. We want to begin this passage where King Solomon begins the passage, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has set a table for you. 
But I want to go from there to the very end of the passage so that we see this remarkable contrast and comparison with one table and another table. And so we'll start with verses 1 through 6, that wisdom has prepared a table, and then we'll jump to verses 7 uh, through, uh, I'm sorry, 13 through 18, where folly has also provided something like a table that seems a bit more like a bed. And then at the very end, we're going to look at the center of the passage, which is an application for us as believers. The first verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has set a table for you. You see in this passage that wisdom has been very hard at work, taking care of all of the major details and all of the minor details. Look at verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She's been very busy. And this reference to pillars may simply be a a quick way of saying that she's made not an ordinary house, but seven indicates perfection. She's made a perfect house. And that perfect house is ready. You remember we were told in the last chapter, in Proverbs chapter 8, that Lady Wisdom was present at all of creation. When creation was being built, Wisdom, she was there. She knows a thing or two about building. And she's done it. She's built the house. And in the same way that she knows how to take care of the major details like the construction of an edifice that is safe and true and perfect, She also knows how to take care of the minor details. You notice this uh, shift from a great house to then details of the preparation of a meal. Verse 2 says that she slaughtered all of the animals necessary. There must be many animals. The passage seems to indicate that. The mention of sacrifice reminds us of a place of not ordinary preparations, but holy preparations. Just as the house is perfect, her work is holy. In fact, it seems a bit less like a house now. It seems a bit more like a temple. But she's setting a table that's very different than what you would ordinarily find in the temple. In a temple, you would find an altar. The sacrifice is killed on an altar. But here in this temple-like structure that is perfect in every way, she set a table, not an altar. And the table is a place to gather. In this great temple, there will be fellowship and community. The table is not for sacrifice because that has already been taken care of. Notice what wisdom does. Wisdom, she sends out a team of preachers. I think verse 3 is preacher language. Maybe you don't. Verse 3 says she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Doesn't that sound like a proclamation, a message? And it's not a, a proclamation from one single location like a marketplace. It's a proclamation from every high place. These attendants, they seem to be everywhere. And look at the message that they have. Their message, it's so straightforward, isn't it? You see in verse 5, come. That's how the message begins. No eloquent introduction. 
No persuasive language to hook you and get you connected into the sermon, which I have already done. Did you catch it? They say, come. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. These attendants are boasting about the completed work of wisdom. They're boasting about someone else. She's done this. It's finished. Ready to be appreciated. Come. And notice that the promise, the promise is not just for a single meal. It can't be. Look what happens between verse 5 and verse 6. There's an intensification here. It's not just a come for one meal. Come to an, uh, an Italian villa for a single meal. Look how expansive verse 6 is. Leave your simple ways. Leave all of your simple ways. You're not to be the same with this meal. And in fact, it's not merely a meal, is it? Come and live, says verse 6. And in fact, if it were just sitting at a table, then why in verse 6 will we have an offer of walking in the way of insight? You don't walk at a table, you sit at a table. What's happening here? Wisdom's attendants are offering more than just a meal. Or perhaps they're offering a, a, a permanent, eternal meal. They're, they're offering more like a way of life. A way to live life. Stop living it that way and come into this house and live your life here. They're offering not just one meal, but an eternal meal. You noticed, didn't you, in these first six verses, how this scene feels holy, churchy, temple-y? The original reader, a, a Jew in the period of King Solomon, would catch this significance too, perhaps even more so. The glorious temple of Solomon was before their eyes, but so too were the many houses of Solomon. They could pick them out. They could see them. These are royal places, divine and earthly. The temple and Solomon's palace. And you cannot expect to sit down to a meal in these places. King Solomon's table is only for the royal family. And the table in the temple is only for sacrifice. But wisdom offers a real table. The doors are swung open. A place of joy and conversation and filling and community and forever. God says that when wisdom's preachers are all around you, come. Will you come? Have you come? Have you stayed? Would you jump with me to verse uh, 13? It's a different kind of message. If wisdom has set a table for you, folly has set a bed for you. And it's not a good bed. You see this contrast right here in verse 13. Lady Folly. She couldn't be more different from wisdom. Do you see that she's not a builder of a house or a preparer of a meal? She does no work at all. Not only is she intellectually unable to build anything, you see in verse 13, she knows nothing 
but neither is she motivated to build anything. You see in verse 14 what she does. She takes a seat. You see how different she is from Lady Wisdom. And so too should it stand out to her that her specialty really is closer to shouting than building. The woman folly is loud. So rather than make a meal, she's uh, more like someone who is in the kitchen making a clamor, banging the pots and pans, making a noise, accomplishing nothing. That's what that word for shout means. She's loud, clamoring, banging together pots and pans, making nothing. But notice what she does from a seated position. She does boast, doesn't she? So much of the language of verses 13 through 18 are racy, inappropriate. Uh, this is why in verse 13, the ESV translates that, uh, that word there that, uh, that uh, reads to us as seductive. It's not that clear of a word, but seductive is the right translation for what this woman does in verse 13. While wisdom sent out attendants to offer promises, folly makes all of the promises herself. What is she if she isn't an adulteress standing in her doorway offering her body to all who pass? She doesn't go out to her audience to offer goodness, but she lets her audience pass before her as they normally would, and she springs on them out of convenience, offering sexual temptation. Let's make no mistake about it. Verses 13 through 18 would have been read by the original audience as very racy. And here we have Lady Folly catching her unsuspected prey, and she allures them to get them to come near. To seduce is to lead. And she leads them with promises. Do you see that? She leads them with promises of food. Not food that she has prepared. We're not told anything about the preparation of this food. But she has some kind of food to offer. And the language would tell us that the food that she offers is her body. Look what she promises them. The food of folly is in verse 17. Food that is stolen. What does that mean? What she's offering is scandalous. She's in fact saying, stealing feels good and you can steal me. The bread that she offers is bread that's intended to be eaten in secret. To be secretive feels good. And I'll keep your secrets. Scandal everywhere. She promises that both the water and the bread will taste not just good, but sweet and pleasant. You see, King Solomon, he's writing to his son and he opens with one kind of meal and he closes with another kind of meal. Wisdom's meal and folly's meal are so different. Can I pause here for just a moment before we look at the center of the passage where we find the application? And can I ask you to contemplate how you are motivated to live a wise life? When I'm up against the decision that requires discernment and wisdom, 
I don't often think about a beautifully set table. I don't often think about a loud, seductive woman. Do you? In fact, when I'm tempted to make a decision that I don't know or suspect is actually a decision that is displeasing to God, when I am staring temptation in the face, even then, I'm not thinking about a loud, seductive woman. It's interesting. What motivates you to make a wise decision rather than a foolish one? I'm really uh, struck by the fact that these two images are meant to help a son walk in wisdom, but I have a hard time seeing it. If I uh, share with you why I'm motivated to be wise, the, the motivation seems to be far less than a table lavishly set for me. It seems to be simpler than that. When faced with a decision small or big that requires wisdom, I'm neither motivated by this fine meal, nor am I motivated by a dangerous adulteress, at least uh, not consciously. But maybe this is the problem. I think that many of us here this morning would confess that we're motivated to make wise decisions, oftentimes for reasons that we're not very proud of. Many times we're motivated to make wise decisions in life because we are absolutely terrified of the punishment of God. What God might do to us. I'm afraid to make an unwise decision because God is going to get me if I make an unwise decision. So often as Christians, we're motivated by fear of punishment. If I make a wrong decision, won't God make something horrible happen to me? But many of us would also confess that we're motivated by reward. We want to make a wise decision, uh, not because it's pleasing to God, and certainly not because we're thinking of a lavishly prepared table. Uh, we're sometimes thinking just about reward. If I suffer a little bit and make this right decision, the big man's going to give me some kind of bonus down the road. I know that's a very crass way to say that, but I know also that we feel that. Why are we motivated to live holy lives before God? To walk in wisdom with insight before Him? There are other motivations, and we know these motivations very well, don't we? I'm motivated to live a wise and holy life because I would feel utterly guilty otherwise. I'm motivated to live a wise life uh, because uh, I want to be uh, liked by other people. Uh, keeping other people happy is important. I want to live a, a holy life because I'm a thoroughgoing legalist. I'm a person who checks boxes, and living a holy life is checking a set of boxes. None of these things are crystal clear. I know that. We're all sinners, though, aren't we? None of our thoughts, words, or deeds are ever 100% holy. I know this is obvious, but sin is always present in our attempts at wisdom. What's the motivation for wisdom and the metaphor of wisdom preparing a special meal? What's the motivation for wisdom and the metaphor of folly offering her body? I want to suggest to you that the motivation that King Solomon has for his son is a relationship. 
both a wisdom and folly. What are they really offering? They're offering a relationship. One is offering a relationship that's all about the undeserved being lavished with goodness. They undeserve everything. I know that's a strange expression. But wisdom's done everything necessary to create a priceless meal. She's mobilized a staff of women to go out into the world and to find guests far and wide. What is proclaimed is wisdom's promise to share the best that she has, the promise of community with others, and the promise to never make you pay for it. And then the other relationship isn't at all about passion and gamesmanship. The seducer offers something to you in a coded kind of language. She knows you want something. You know you want something. No one wants to talk about that, but she entices you nonetheless, and you entice yourself. Folly makes you feel smart even when you're not. She offers illicit food, and she offers to enjoy it with you. These are relationships, my friends. Wisdom offers a relationship. Folly offers a relationship. And do you hear how these two relationships are taking shape? I wonder if a proper motivation to walk with wisdom is to desire the right kind of relationship that the Father has offered to us in Jesus. Who do you want to be with more? Jesus or your passions as they're stirred up by Lady Folly? Do you want to be with her? Or do you want to be with the Savior who's come to you as that perfect meal? Let's be honest, it's not always an easy decision for us, is it? In certain moments of life, it's so hard to desire that relationship with Jesus and very easy in temptation to desire a relationship with folly which is really just a relationship with my own passions. I just think about this. When a potentially lucrative financial offer uh, comes rolling down your way, staring you in the face, isn't it hard to choose wisdom over folly? It, when a, uh, when a, uh, you can sense that an argument is about to happen between you and someone else, and you're getting all of your points lined up, isn't it so hard to desire that feast with Jesus than the feast with folly? When a beautiful stranger is walking your way, when a hyperlink is calling out your name, who do you want to cultivate a relationship with? Wisdom or folly? Right in the middle of our passage is just musical words for us. We need someone to remind us of what we have in Christ. Verses 7 through 12 are telling the Son, Do not be a scoffer. That's the middle of the passage, and this is where we're going to conclude. Look at verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incures injury. A scoffer is one who disagrees aggressively. King James calls this person a scorner. Uh, Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Proverbs, says that a scoffer is someone who completely shuts their mind to wisdom. We know people like this. 
Don't you know of people whom you have held out the gospel of grace to over and over and over again in word and in deed, but year after year they refuse? They might be thoughtful debaters, but they also might be the kind of people who are thoughtless. They just write Jesus off. They're scoffers. You offer the gospel and all you get is abuse and injury. This passage doesn't tell us how far we should go. You remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample uh, and uh, trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. When do we come to that point in sharing the gospel? I don't know. And this passage doesn't tell us that. But we know what a scoffer is like. But I want you and I to consider something in this passage. What if the scoffer is already a Christian? What if the reproof and correction is not a call to believe in the gospel for the first time, but a call to continue believing in that gospel? What if the scoffer is a person who loves Jesus and struggles to walk with wisdom? This has to be at least entertained in this passage. Look at verse 12. King Solomon, the father, says to his son, but if you are wise, my son, you are wise for yourself. He doesn't say my son. But he's contemplating the reality that his son struggles this way as well. You know, Paul says in Galatians 6, let each one test his own work. Each will have to bear his own load. This passage here in verse 12 is, is telling us that if you avoid wisdom, you'll prove to be the loser. Now, I'm not sure if you're with me here, but I think it's very important for us to consider that we might at times be scoffers. As Christians, we know about wisdom, we know about this meal, but we just prefer folly. The Bible tells us over and over again that brothers and sisters need to reprove and correct brothers and sisters. We need that. This is the Paolo in Italy who invites you and invites you and invites you. Set your doubt aside. Come to the villa and enjoy the meal. You may not know the name Henry Martin. He was a uh, missionary of the early 1800s. And a commentator who knows him very well tells stories about Henry Martin and his ministry. And he says that uh, Henry Martin was the kind of man who spoke publicly about the duty uh, to tell others uh, things that are hard for them to hear as Christians. But Henry Martin says uh, that reproof is a duty of unlimited extent and almost insuperable difficulty. It is so hard to tell our brothers and sisters that they were made for this table. Enjoy that table. Don't be a fool. Live with wisdom. Walk with wisdom. And Henry Martin told people that. And you and I, we need people to tell us that. Someone has said it is hard to know when to sit down with a brother or sister and tell them that they are scoffing. It is hard. But happy is the church that receives the loving admonitions of the saints with humility and thankfulness. Those are the words of Charles Bridges, who is a friend of Henry Martin. 
the Apostle Paul was comfortable admitting to others, I used to be a persecutor. I used to be a blasphemer. Paul was comfortable confessing his sins. I think Romans 7 is an example of that. And Paul was also comfortable with reproving a brother, Peter. He does that in Galatians 2. And Peter was comfortable receiving that reproof from Paul. Perhaps not in the moment. But this is what we need. This passage is a reminder to us. Wisdom has prepared a lavish meal. And what we need as Christian people is we need to be chased down by the attendance of wisdom. And you and I as professing believers have an opportunity to do that for our brothers and sisters. We wander around the city going about our lives. And don't we forget who we are? Don't we forget that we belong in that royal palace, in that royal dining room? Don't we forget all that has been done for our salvation, but we wander about the city in our busyness and we forget? I hear Christians shove all of the benefits of redemption way off into the future as if Christianity is all about what happens to me after I die. And after I die, all of those benefits will come to me. That's true and false at the same time. You are a Christian, and if you are a Christian, the benefits of redemption are not cardened off into your future, never to be experienced in the present. Your life is to be lived around this table. The sacrifice has been made. The meal is prepared. This is where you belong. It's a royal table to be sure. But you, in Christ Jesus, are the child of of God. It's meant for now. Now Jesus is with you. Now this meal in the villa at Nogorazza is yours. And what's wonderful about Christianity is we know this, but we think it's for other people. We have Christian brothers and sisters who are struggling with poverty, but they have a deep sense of peace because they know who they are as Christians and they take comfort in that. They're poor, but they're cheerful. We know Christians that struggle with depression, and yet all the while they know that Jesus loves them and is with them. It's a burden that they carry, but it's not a burden that defines them. They're sitting at the table delighting in the benefits of redemption. We know people like this, and maybe you're someone like this. The call to worship the Lord is not just for the future. The call to fear the Lord is not just for the future. Here is what the, the attendants of wisdom say to you. Come. You wandered away. Come. If you're a Christian, this meal is always, always available to you. Regardless of circumstances, persecution, pain, this is your meal. Thanks be to God for setting the table in Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank You for inviting us to this table, for serving us this meal, for serving this meal now, in the present. 
filling us with peace and confidence and assurance despite the busyness of life. Thank you for providing lavishly for us in Jesus Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit. Amen.